This is the inaugural episode of the Wolf Podcast. Uh, this will be both a learning process and a bit of an exploration. The main plan for 2024 is to discuss a novel by William Gibson with a guest each month. Since Gibson's career is broken up into discrete trilogies, I decided the best way to handle this was to have the same guest for each book in each trilogy. Along the way, I may make some detours into fiction and short pieces and uh, whatever else I feel like using this uh, this podcast space for. Today, we have the one, the only, J. David Osborne, the king of Broken River, uh, I guess writers, collective now. Um, he wrote one of my favorite books called Black Gum. He most recently wrote A War in Heaven in the God's Fair No Better series, the cyberpunk series, which is appropriate for William Gibson. David, how's it going? Going good, man. Happy to be here on the inaugural episode. I thought that I had read Neuromancer before, but I make the mistake that it seems like <laughs> everybody makes where you mix up Snow Crash and Neuromancer. I've read Snow Crash before. Okay, that's funny. So, uh, yeah, well, I have um, somewhat infamously, this is the fourth time that I've tried to finish Neuromancer. And the first time that I finished it. And uh, I, in a post a long time ago, said that I hate this book. And uh, I guess we'll figure out today how I feel about it. <laughs> that, what, what parts did you get to in your first read, attempted read-throughs? So every time I read it, I get less far, except for this one, because I sort of forced myself to finish it, mm-hmm. which maybe is a preview. Um, but the first time I stopped about 50 pages from the end, Partly because I was just like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And then yeah. The, sec- the second time I got like halfway through and I was sitting there and I was like, Who- who's doing what? Yeah. And then <laughs> the yeah. third time, I think I just uh, read the first chapter again, which is so good. Uh, first chapter, it is like so obscenely good that it- I think that's why the book has become what it's become. Because like you read that first chapter and you're like, Man, this is gonna be the best book ever. And you keep reading, you're just kind of like, at least I'm just like, what, 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 what the fuck, man, going mm-hmm, on? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, so, no, how did you yeah. feel about reading this book? It was very interesting to go from reading the shards, which is 750 <laughs> pages and not very many characters. Um, some of the negative Goodreads reviews of the shards did complain about how many characters there are, but it's a 250,000 word book, so it's kind of more broken up. To a book like this that seems to be its complete opposite, I think that this is actually the kind of book that I used to try to write. Yeah. Uh, extremely dense, extremely uh, plotty. I mean, things happen constantly in this. And if you don't remember who you know, the pimp is in the first chapter that you see for like three lines, you're not going to get who Case is talking to halfway through the book that, you know, uh, 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 Wintermute is like using to speak through or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, ag- I agree with you 100% that I think that, uh, you know, comparing this to another uh, famous cyberpunk book, Altered Carbon, which kind of did take its time and allowed you to live sort of in these worlds. Neuromancer feels very much like everything is on fast forward. And I think 
I, I just think that by the time you get to the space station and there are Philip K. Dick style uh, what is real and what isn't real <laughs> and you know, this guy with, I, I did think that the hallucination stuff was really cool. I liked a lot of those images. Yeah. Um, but it's just so much. You just kind of have to let it I was going to say wash over you, but it's it's not even really wash. It's it's like being jammed into your eyeballs. Like, well, kind of like how some of these characters must feel. Yeah, it, when you said that, it made me think of uh, the rain down on me with Blade, Blade <laughs> Runner going on. It's just mm-hmm. like the rain, mm-hmm. it's just like the novel's pouring on you and uh, you're either in existential despair or delight, I guess. Some people mm-hmm. really, I mean, obviously people love this. I think part of it is a uh, novelty of a book like this you know when it came out there wasn't a book like this Mm -hmm. um and i guess i was just reading uh he when he was writing this book or he was under contract for it already um Mm -hmm. and he wrote like a few chapters and then blade runner came out he was like oh Mm -hmm. fuck (laughs) because he so he basically threw away everything he wrote because he's like everyone's just gonna say that i'm you know writing the novelization of blade runner um Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think I wonder if that made him kind of like push the language harder that sometimes to the degree uh, makes it it's kind of difficult in a way that's um, not fun. <laughs> I, but I do feel like it would have slotted right in when I was 18, oh, when yeah. we were 18 and reading, you know, Will Christopher Bear and Craig Clevenger. It's very much of that style of book. Yeah. Right? Very language heavy, very poetic. More so than even something like Altered Carbon or Snow Crash, for that matter. Um, yeah, i i didn't I didn't dislike dislike the book actually. Um, I kind of took. I mean, I listened to it very fast on like one point eight speed, mm-hmm. and I just kind of let the book roll, mostly because I knew that we had to talk right so <laughs> i was just like last night i was just like letting it go um and i'm pretty sure i got most of it but i think that the um yeah the language in the book is very good though and that first yeah. chapter the first two chapters i would say are really solid and you know and i liked the rastafarian space people <laughs> like i thought i thought that was cool but yeah the the problem is i feel like that the book gets very muddied when it comes to what its theme actually is, right? right. Um, there are some cool lines in there about, you know, Case discovering that, you know, that it feels good to hate because he's actually feeling something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just ratchets up to this insane level where, you know, Neuromancer and Wintermute, they're like this, they become God, basically. They're like the Matrix, but different than... The, it just, it feels like he really went for it and usually i like novels that are written as though they're the only novel that writer is ever going to write but yeah. uh this one i'd i'd say i'm i'm probably more positive on it than you but <laughs> i didn't love it like i loved you know altered carbon yeah and it's interesting that you say like uh you know writing it like it's the last book you're gonna write because uh he thought so he was like under contract already and he was running up against that deadline and he was like, oh, fuck, like, this is not working out. Like, no one's going to read this stupid book. And, of course, you know, it became what it became. But I, I think at a certain point, he did just sort of fall into just being like, this is the only shot I got. I'm just I'm just doing it. I'm just going, going whole hog. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting mm-hmm. to draw in comparisons to like Will Christopher Bear and uh, Craig Clevenger because I think they're these three authors are drawing from the same pool of like uh, gritty noir pulp novelists. I think that that's where the language like we've talked about the language a little bit, and it's it's more influenced by like James uh, Kane and those kind of guys than it is. Uh, like James Joyce or something like that. There's mm-hmm. sort of like a gritty poeticism, almost like um, Jean Genet, where it's just like, this is the streets and it's fucked, but I'm pretty. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I think I'm going to have you try to do a short summary, because you said yeah. you think you got most of it. I think I got most of it. Okay. So at the beginning of it, we meet Case, our protagonist, who is a net runner. Um, which is a cyberpunk 2077 term, and we'll get into yeah. just how much cyberpunk, like down to calling the city Night City, uh, <laughs> lifted. But well, I, I think ne- it's it's not just the game cyber. It's basically most cyberpunk that follow just like oh, th- so this is kind of a cool thing I think about Gibson is he basically invented a language or a new kind of science fiction and invented the genre at the same time, which almost no one does. You know, people might invent a genre, but they don't then also invent the language and the tools with which you explain that genre. So it is pretty, uh, you can't deny the importance of Neuromancer, but go on. So he is uh, a hacker. He he jacks into the Matrix and he steals things for people or he, he bypasses uh, heavy security, which is called ICE in the book. But he did a job where he skimmed some off the top. So his employers caught him and injected him with an endotoxin that made it impossible for him to jack into the Matrix. And he's basically like, if you were to take a teenager's cell phone away in 2023, that's how I pictured Case in this. He feels nothing. Uh, uh-huh. He doesn't even hate anything. He's a drug addict because he, you know, he's just trying to feel, he's trying to get that feeling back from when he was you know, in the Matrix. So he is enlisted by Molly, who is called a Razor Girl. Uh, she's got, like, really cool implanted shades in her eyes, and she's got razors in her fingertips. Uh, and this guy, Armitage, who is, uh, turns out later on, is actually like a beat. He was a person, but has been taken over by an AI. Doesn't matter right now. <laughs> and they are asked with stealing a bit of information. Let me make sure I'm getting this right. They're tasked with stealing information. Molly is the muscle of it, and he is the Netrunner guy. So they basically uh, they fix him so that he can get into the Matrix again. Yeah. Uh, it takes about a week. Uh, they give him a new pancreas so that he can no longer process drugs, which I thought was pretty funny. Right? Yeah. Like, you can <laughs> take, take as many drugs as you want. It's not going to matter. Um, and then they go on a heist to uh steal trying to remember exactly what they were trying to steal um while they are McCoy polly he's a another he's like a famous net runner cowboy as they call them oh right on right on cyber cowboy so what's really funny is that the heist goes kind of bad uh the way that they do it is they basically make the cops think that there's this outbreak of a virus um which is really funny because 
they basically <laughs> create this bloodbath of like people trying to escape from the building and the cops just mowing them down uh, Dawn <laughs> of the Dead style when they run out of, or Night of the Living Dead style when they run out um, and that's real just... quick have you read uh, Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut no I haven't read that so one. in Cat's Cradle there's um, I'm trying to remember what the there's like some weird thing it's like a sort of like a MacGuffin maybe but I think it's called Ice Nine and uh, I think the it's called Blue Nine, like this virus that they release, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm yeah, so I was wondering mm-hmm. if that was like a nod to uh, Kurt Vonnegut. But oh, yeah, probably who knows? so. <laughs> um, um, so they, so from there, uh, give me one second, I'm going to remember. Um, from there, they go, they basically find out that they need to travel to Istanbul. Istanbul is next, right? Uh, um, I mean, this is a. Uh... Part this is one of those parts where I was because it it becomes squishy to me because it's yeah, like yeah. they start globe trotting and they do it fast you know right. they're I I'm trying to they go to the even, sprawl next they go to the sprawl after that so we see the sprawl and the sprawl goes from stretches from Boston to Atlanta it's yeah. it's one giant city now uh, also idea. shout out shout out David Simmons there's a interlude where they go to Baltimore and eat crab legs I, <laughs> I, I forgot about that throw that out there um they go to this they're based okay i'm gonna give you the overall where they go they go to the sprawl they go to istanbul they encounter uh this this guy the bad guy who can create hallucinations which is really cool like at mm-hmm. one point he cre- like when they first meet him he creates this like uh headless mo- centipede monster thing that scares everybody but is uh not real um Case is haunted because uh, back when he was in uh, Chiba, he had a girlfriend who stole from him and who ends up, uh, I guess, dying. He kind of lets her die. She gets killed. Uh, But he starts to fall in love with this razor girl, Molly. uh, And they are basically puppets that are being uh, kind of manipulated by this AI uh, called Wintermute that wants to bond with another ai called neuromancer um in order to become this godlike ai thing yeah. and it takes them into space uh to a space colony of rastafarians uh where he meets another Malcolm. hilarious idea <laughs> yeah yeah Malcolm's awesome too um and they where do they go from there oh and then they go to kind of like uh, the stray light, I think I believe it was called. I'm trying to remember yeah. this correctly, but it's like the rich, uh, like where rich people hang out. It's a, you know, it's levels stacked on top of each other, but each level feels like it has an open sky and that it's its own world and stuff. And they are looking. Eventually, they link up with these clones. <laughs> and this, I mean, help me out. Like towards the end, it's just this is where things like yeah. So he also meets then like Neuromancer and this is actually I think one of the best parts of the whole book even though it it's it's a weird break in the action and it's almost like the entire novel stops and it's all in uh, virtual reality or uh, you know cyberspace or whatever but it's it's very lifelike and it's almost I think there's a reason that William Gibson describes the matrix a few times as a consensual hallucination of like millions because in a sense at this point He's consenting to a hallucination of his what his life could be if uh, Linda Lee, if he didn't let her die. 
So she's mm-hmm. in there, and Win- uh, Neuromancer is like this little Brazilian boy on the beach. Mm-hmm. And it's a very evocative and like quiet moment in a novel that doesn't have a lot of quiet moments. Um, and uh, it's almost like he's given an option. It's like you can live here in this hallucination forever, and just have your have your body rot in its jacked in position, I guess. And uh, mm-hmm. you can be happy with Linda Lee and me, this little Brazilian boy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And Case, of course, uh, doesn't do that. He jacks um, out and they're like, you were out for five minutes. They did, yeah. they did the classic sci-fi thing where he was in uh-huh. there for days. And then when he jacks out, they're like, oh, man, five minutes. You were flatlined. That reminds me. Also, oh, yeah. another uh, cyberpunk thing. There is Dixie Flatline, right? Who mm-hmm. something that's really cool in this is and it, it kind of it goes to the name Neuromancer, which is also the name of the AI. Uh, the AI kind of tells you that it is like the link between the land of the living and the dead. But there's something esoteric and occultish about yeah, uh, sure. what it means to what it means to be dead, um, because Dixie Flatline is like a construct of this netrunner who finally died from doing too much risky shit. And that, to me, is exactly like Keanu Reeves in 2077. Right? Mm. He's a construct of this guy who lives in your head. Um, but I thought that character was was pretty cool and surprisingly important by the yeah. end of it. Um, yeah, I think it. Yeah, so uh, you, I guess go on to the ending, basically. Oh, so the ending to the degree you understand it. <laughs> yeah, so basically he uh, they do merge, right? Um, he goes back to he goes back to the beach. Um, he sees Linda and the boy. Uh, Jacks out, but then he goes. He goes back to. Well, no, he stays in the sprawl. He doesn't go back to Chiba, and uh, Molly ends up leaving him because she yeah. says, like, you know, hey, I'm kind of losing my edge here. Uh, but he Get sort of, <laughs> yeah, he sort of bops around uh, a bit, and then, um, yeah, and then there's this. Uh, there's this AI that now exists that is equal to the Matrix, but but different somehow. Yeah. And uh, I guess Dixie finally gets his wish to... Because he just wants to stop existing. Right. It seems like, I guess it's kind of hell to be like one of these constructs or whatever. And uh, Neuromancer says that he got his wish and more. And you kind of, like, Case kind of hears him at one point. Uh, and then that's the end, as far as I remember. Yeah, he also sees, um, he does see again Linda Lee and the boy at the beach, but then he yep. also sees himself there. So it's like, right, um, right, right. So, so even though he did not make that choice, which was essentially to become a construct, um, it's like it, the assumption Case makes is that Neuromancer uh, made a construct of him anyway. And so now he's just like chilling with Linda Lee and <laughs> as a construct. Um, yeah. yeah, the uh, the novel's kind of confusing. I, um, mm-hmm. but it's really I don't know. It's it's a weird book because I think the the parts that are good are so good. Um, mm-hmm. Like I'm glad I like I think the first time I read it, I stopped right before that scene at the beach and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think had I gotten there, probably would have pushed me to the end. Um, because I, I so it's like to me, there's the beginning is great, the end is. Uh, kind of great <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um it's it's very uh it's kind of just like hold on to your hat and and go and then mm-hmm. like in the mm-hmm. middle things just 
kind of just becomes squishy and confusing in ways yeah. that I don't think are on purpose. And I think that that's like a big difference to me between something like this versus um, what's a good compare. I don't know. I just read like Ulysses recently. So like uh, Ulysses, which is sort of aggressively trying to make you confused. Mm-hmm. It's like, so part of the point of Ulysses is like just kind of getting lost and carrying on anyway. Whereas this, it's, it's, it's like I got lost and uh, there weren't any like side marks and the plot kept sprinting along anyway. Yeah. It just keeps going. That's yeah. the thing, is that it, and, is that it just keeps going. And I mean, like you said, there are really good moments in the back half too. Like I really liked uh, Riviera's performance, right? Mm-hmm. Where he basically has sex. With, like I thought that was really awkward and yeah. <laughs> like gross and, but like a good, a good interlude. But I think what's interesting about that is that Gibson is working with tone in this a lot. So the way I felt about that scene was like, it's, it's a weird thing that, I think I've actually done in the past before too, where you are representing your protagonist's uh, emotional journey externally, basically, because that performance is all about how Molly and Case feel about it and by extension each other. Uh, But there's a lot of interest, like weird things that happen that way, right? Where, where plot points sort of pull double duty as character development as Mm. well. And I think that, where I'm at right now with writing is I'm not sure that's a good idea anymore. I would have said it was a good idea like 10 years ago, but yeah. I think that's, I, you know, this book could definitely be called cinematic, right? Yeah. It's a very cinematic novel. And I think that something like that might work in cinema where you're actually able to envision it, but I'm not sure that's what books are supposed to do. Right. I think that it requires, um, it requires a kind of buy-in that, I don't think a lot of readers are would be willing to give to you. Of course, this book has sold what ten million copies or something like that. So yeah, but it also, amount. I mean, it's it's also a thirty year old book, right? Or over 40, thirty years, I think. forty. Yeah, I think it came 40. out. In, well, let's look. Um, nineteen eighty four. So exactly forty. Forty. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, I just wonder. I not to get too far down the you know people these days type thing, but I wonder <laughs> if Neuromancer could exist and it wouldn't exist and do as well i'm just gonna go no, out there and absolutely. say it like yeah th- there's no way mostly because no book does this well in general especially like right. a because this was written as it was a debut paperback so it's like you know the the cheapest printings that books used to get that's also why gibson was like this is my one shot and if i blow it you know that's it because it's like you know to print one of these books probably cost like 30 cents you know it's like if you left it out in the rain it would just dissolve (laughs) um so the fact that it's i have one of those too by the way one of the really old ones yeah really it's cool looking that's not what i read that's not how i read it but it's on my shelf nice but um but yeah no i just i i really do think that it's so innovative in how it depicts cyberspace which i always kind of pictured as using 80s or 90s era graphics and i think if they ever do get around to making the movie that's how they should do it they should i hope that's how they do it i think they should do it make it look exactly like total recall honestly yeah yeah like the you know like the styrofoam cars that are kind of like shaking because it's supposed to look Mm -hmm. futuristic but it's just like 
you know a cardboard box on wheels <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no it totally should look like that and and everybody's you know crazy implants and uh, i really feel like this is a uh, it's also just kind of an aggressively ugly book too yeah like it makes you feel bad case is always especially okay for the listener how he mentioned that he can't uh his pancreas can't get him high anymore mm-hmm. like he really wants to get high about third of the or two-thirds of the way through the book and so he goes and he finds a drug that's strong enough to get him high. And then the kind of like hangover scene after that was just bru- it's like brutal to listen to. Right. Yeah. Nobody nobody in this book really ev- ever feels good or peaceful unless they are in, you know, Neuromancer's like spell. Under Neuromancer's spell. Yeah. And, and I mean that's kind of like uh at the beginning he sort of signals that where it's like you know the only his goal in life ever since he first touched the matrix was to like essentially escape his body so i think that's why at the end neuromancer offers him to be a con like literally just leave that body behind you know everything sucks Mm -hmm. you feel terrible but you can be here with linda lee who will love you forever because she's not real you know and (laughs) he'll just be here on the beach hanging out having a good time i was i was confused about that though because so the not real thing is called into question too, right? Yeah. Because at some points, Linda Lee is the AI uh, using his memories, but at other times, and I might have gotten this wrong, it actually also is like Dixie Flatline, right? Like a, a construct of who she actually was. Yeah, so, it's it's unclear, and it's like you know that kind of like asks the question that it's like if if you could make a construct, like just you know send someone's exact brain into cyberspace and copy it perfectly like would that still be them um that's that's kind of the uh the ship of theseus thing that hangs over most cyberpunk literature that does this kind of stuff um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean yeah it is it real if if your brain thinks it's real i mean i guess you know (laughs) like why not well the 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 rastafarians uh say that literally right at one point uh this guy's talking about a you know a hallucination that he had because he got really really high Mm -hmm. but he's referring to it as real and case says something to the effect of like well it's not real and their uh religious sect by the way their ship is called the marcus garvey which i thought was (laughs) um but their religious sect thinks that that's rude to do yeah because if you experience it and you experience it as real to them they talk about it as though it is real yeah um and like uh i would say that's true of like any time that i've hallucinated you know if you do if you do the right kind of drugs uh it'll be like oh well that didn't happen it's like well i mean it happened to me Mm -hmm. it it didn't happen to you so i understand why you don't think that but it's like it it did happen to me and uh Mm -hmm. you know in a sense it is uh the first bad trip i ever had um (laughs) it was kind of funny but uh Funny to look back on. Not funny while it was happening. But I described it later as sort of like wrestling a dragon, but the dragon's also me. Um, And you have sort of like a dark night of the soul during these experiences. And it's no different than having like a panic attack, I guess, or like a, you know, kind of some kind of like mental breakdown. Uh, The difference is that like you on purpose gave it to yourself because you took Mm -hmm. drug. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, I mean, it is just as real as that. And uh, 
I learned a lot about myself and I think it's made me more resilient as a person in general to have had um, multiple bad trips. I don't mm-hmm. recommend having yeah. them, but I kind of do. I kind of do. Yeah, they'll, I kind of do. As long as you don't I've, break completely, you'll be mentally yeah. stronger afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I've had DMT before, but I've never had ayahuasca, which mm-hmm. is just slow drip DMT. And almost everybody who... Uh, I know who's taken it has said that it, it's it seems mostly unpleasant. Um, <laughs> you you shit yourself and you throw up and Perfect. <laughs> you and you encounter like you're talking about like you encounter a dragon that's also you. But I I do think that that's important specifically because I don't think I think it's important for men. You know, not not to get too gendered with it, but I think that women have a lot of very painful physical experiences that they go through in life, mm. like getting their periods, childbirth. Uh, I think that my hunch is that women experience pain more intensely than men do. I don't know if there's science to back that up, but men don't really have that. I mean, we just kind of start to grow hair everywhere and our voice <laughs> gets deeper, and then we're just dudes, you know? Yeah. We just continue being dudes. So forcing yourself to have a really really tough experience like a tough painful mental experience i think is i think it's good and i would especially say that it's good um now that dopamine is drip fed to us constantly and we're we're constantly looking to 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 feel good you're not supposed to feel good all the time and our ancestors didn't have any problem not feeling good all the time because they felt like shit all the time (laughs) Yeah, I think the uh, the frictionless existence, which is kind of what Neuromancer is offering Case as well. It's mm-hmm. like a frictionless life. Um, uh, I forget who it was. It says, like, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, I think that's dumb. But I do think that a frictionless life uh, makes you want to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, uh, if nothing is hard in life, like, I don't know. I, I went through school. School is not that hard. I just kind of did it. And then uh, I was done with it. And I still don't know how to study. And I still don't know how to like read a book. I mean, I can read a book, but I just I just read it. They're like, why don't you, do mm-hmm. you take notes on anything? I was like, well, why would I take notes on anything? I've never done that in my entire life. Like, why, why would I start? Because now? maybe your your friend might ask you to go on a podcast, and then you have to tell the plot. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, geez, bro, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, that's like a funny yeah. problem for me. Even uh, I kept I was hyper conscious this time to remember the narrator's name or the protagonist's name because mm-hmm. I always forget names of characters even while i'm reading a book like mm-hmm. i'm reading um i'm reading this like fantasy book right now called something eden's way i don't know something like that and mm-hmm. uh if you asked me what the character's name were, i would change the subject because i yeah. i literally don't know and i was reading it oh. last night dude it gets brutal because i'm reading <laughs> six four from for my podcast i'm going to talk to jason about it uh-huh. and it's a bunch of japanese last names and yeah. There's like Minako and Mikano, right? And yeah. like Aikawa and Aishawa. And I'm like, you couldn't have made them a little bit different, dude? Like you're, or like, you're doing this on purpose. You knew yeah, you knew yeah. Americans and English, like Westerners were going to read this and just be like, wait, are these the same guy? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I actually yeah. tried listening to that book and I stopped for that reason. Um, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. like, so I, when I'm reading a book, I'm never confused about who characters are. But I also, it's like a, a very strong contextual memory. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I never know, 
I never don't know what's happening usually when I'm reading a book, but uh, at the same time, if you're like, oh, who, who was talking that uh, paragraph? I'd be like, oh, man, I got to look back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, not in the exact same way. And uh, I mean, that extends out to kind of forgetting how you get to where you're going, right? Uh-huh. Because it's like they go into outer space, and now as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, right, because he gets sick. He gets space sick for a while. Yeah. And I'd completely forgotten about that. And it's coming this back book, as I'm talking to it about yeah, it. And I, th- I do think this book is kind of. <laughs> so um, we kind of talked about a little bit how this would do if it came out now. But I think part mm-hmm. of why it succeeded then um, is because of the way that science fiction has traditionally been written. Like He mm-hmm. talks about like Asimov and these guys. And they're, uh, you know, a lot of high concept writing with low, what I would say is low character development. Mm-hmm. Or just like low importance on character in general. And Neuromancer is more character focused than like, uh, you know, Foundation, I'd say. But at the same time, it's way more interested in its concepts. You know, there's a lot of techno babble that um, you can let it rain down on you or you can try to make sense of it. Uh, I would not try to make sense of it because Gibson himself admits he's like, I don't know anything about technology. Mm-hmm. He's like, I wrote mm-hmm. this book on a typewriter. Like I was not mm-hmm. some you know, future savant. <laughs> like, right. Um, no, he says that he says that in the intro yeah. too. One very yeah. interesting thing he mentions in the intro is that he completely misses the arrival of cell phones. Yeah. Which and, is, I think, but I think it's so cool. And don't you think, don't you wish rather that science fiction would do that more. Like, yeah. instead of trying to say, have your starting point be 2024 and then move on from there, like, go back to yeah. 1984 and write from that perspective and then just change it, you know? There are yeah. no cell phones. I think that's awesome. I think, I mean, now they just that's just called alternate uh, history, but I do like that approach a lot. I like the, and I mean, to a sense, this is even alternate history while it's happening. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember if he ever says what year it is. I don't think he does. No, no, but, but it's, it's, I mean, it's probably like in the 24th or 25th century because right. of there's some hints of like, you know, this big war happening a hundred years ago and nobody can remember it. Um, and just how long it would take for the sprawl to come into right. being, I think. Um, I was thinking like 24, 2500. Something yeah. like that. And I mean, there's space colonies, you know, it's though maybe in yeah. the 80s that didn't seem that far away. <laughs> yeah, before we found out that that's fucking impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's never going to happen. Yeah. But uh, he he's talked about, too, um, how it's like not knowing what was happening in technology allowed him to sort of give it this uh, brutal poeticism because it's like rather than try to explain how technology got better, he abstracted it a little bit through mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. poetics and language and i think that that is overall very successful um mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah so it's like i think the readership was just primed to have something that was high concept didn't matter that much who characters are because it's like you're here for the you know junkie telling a space cyber story and just the mm-hmm. invention of cyberspace in general I think blew the top of people's heads off enough that they were, because you also have to remember like who were science fiction readers in the eighties. Um, even mm-hmm. still they're mostly men, but like, especially in the eighties, it was like, you know, engineers and like 
stuff like that. People mm-hmm. who are going to be scientists and engineers. Um, and so their, uh, their interest in this stuff, I think it probably kept them from getting lost less too, because mm-hmm. they were so keyed into the idea. It's like, you know, when, um, and this happens to me at least when I read a book that kind of does something new or makes me think about things in a new way is like, I remember it way better later than if I'm, if I'm reading a book, I'm just like, this is fine. I mm-hmm. might not remember any of it six months later. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, um, the first time I read David Graeber, one of David Graeber's books, um, I was just like, man, this is like full of so many novel ideas that they're just kind of like burrowing into me. And I'm following these things that are kind of dry that normally I might be like, uh, maybe it's time to skim a little bit, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think that that helped uh, more readers a little bit. It's like they kind of chained themselves to the concepts, and so they didn't let go or get lost. Oh, that's interesting. So instead of following a character development thread, so to speak, which th- the book does have character yeah, development, it does. for sure, um, it's more following conceptual threads. So now you're in cyberspace, and I love the way, by the way, that he describes cyberspace as like these yeah. green blocks, and that the virus that he puts in there to break through the ice turns into a jet plane (laughs) like that must have blown the tops of people's heads off back then before it became a trope and i mean isn't that fair too like that we are talking about a lot of this after these tropes have been sort of the corpse of neuromancer has been picked clean and oh yeah i mean everything's been put together that was so the first time i read it and i didn't finish it um i was much easier on it because i was like i think the it's kind of what i call like the casablanca problem you know, mm-hmm. you watch Casablanca, even if you watched it 40 years ago, it's still been so in, like, the zeitgeist. And, like, the first time you watch it, you feel like you've already watched it because you've heard half the lines before. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of how it is with Neuromancer, um, especially, like, after The Matrix and stuff like that. Uh, is, you know, Cyberpunk, at that point, it was in its, like, second renaissance. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like there's there's so much development since Neuro, uh, since Neuromancer that to come back to it is it can't feel new you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it just like literally can't um yeah like even the first line the you know the very famous first line where the sky above the port was a color of television turned to a dead channel um Mm -hmm. the way i understood that when i first read it i was like oh so it's like a staticky sky yeah that's what i thought too yeah which is not what he meant what what's a oh is it blue yeah, it's like the, this like bright uh just strange shade of blue. Like in, like right. an unreal blue basically. Yeah, yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. By the way, I have seen that quote. Uh you know when you go to libraries and they yeah. have quotes from James Joyce and, you know, all these famous like that quote is like a top 100. It's it's enough to be put on the wall of li- of a library. Yeah. Is what I'm and saying. And it is you read that and like doesn't matter when you're reading it. It is. It's, you're just like, what the? What does that mean? But also, holy shit! You know, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like that's that's really yeah. You know, you kind of, he, you know what you're in for. And like you said, that first chapter does a really good job of setting up the pace and the amount of. Okay, here's a thought. Actually, this just came to me as I was talking. Um, it feels like just using altered carbon again because it's mm-hmm. relative. I read it like a year ago, I think now. Um, 
he does a similar thing with the opening chapter of Altered Carbon, but then that book slows way down because it's over right. 500 pages. And I think that potentially what happened with uh, Neuromancer and why some people might love it so much um, is that it actually does sustain that pace throughout its entire, what is it, like 300 pages or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that where I'm... It's, it was so funny to me, again, that this falls smack in the middle between the shards and 6-4 for me. And <laughs> this track that I'm on about writing now and the hangout principle yeah. uh, that you talk about all the time that I just wrote about for my Substack, um, And then reading a book that has almost zero hanging out in it was yeah. just really funny. I'm like, oh, okay. So th <laughs> this is like an example almost of just, w again, where I would have been had you asked me how a novel was supposed to look 10 years ago, I would have said Neuromancer. Just all That's throttle. Crazy. All throttle. Yeah, yeah, never letting off the gas. But where I'm at now, I found it to be uh, fun. It was fun. But yeah. yeah, just exhausting. And you're looking for a little bit more. Like you actually, I do want to know who Molly and Case are, right? And I right. don't want to be given their development through the external things that happen to them and how they react. You know, because there's a lot of screaming and throwing up and shitting you know like all this, <laughs> all this kind of like kabuki over the top emotion or whatever yeah. and a lot of it just feels like but he also doesn't really care about anything i don't know i, I had a really yeah. hard time connecting to uh the characters in this book yeah which and can be done like yeah the, it would be a cop-out to say well it's cyberpunk and they're all augmented and it's the far future so maybe you're not you you still can yeah i think um this does remind me the the sort of like uh, personal disconnect that I have from these characters reminds me of when I was reading um, a few years ago those like really pulpy noir writers of like the forties because it is there's almost no interiority so like you know your your narrator will just like go murder a kid or whatever and it's like he's the good guy <laughs> you know and you're just like why did he do that uh, mm -hmm. and just he did it you know he, and you're just you're just gone um mm -hmm. but i think the ex i want to touch back on that too the externality of development um because i hadn't thought of it that way until you said it like half an hour ago but i it makes me think almost of like uh you know the hero's journey kind of thing and th this novel is playing with big archetypes on purpose you know like deliberately um mm -hmm. Even you know, making you question the big questions, which is always a big thing for people. It's like, well, what is real? I don't know. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, but it does make uh, some of the story. I think make more sense to me. Um, and that it's like, why are we just like zipping across the planet constantly? It's like, well, these places are in a sense like touchstones of Case's life. Like mm -hmm. returning to the sprawl. So, so Case started life like in the sprawl. That's like where he's from. That's uh, that's where he his career was. And the only reason he went to Chiba in Japan was to, in hopes that he could fix himself of what uh, mm -hmm. these neurotoxins that blasted out his uh, ability to con connect to the Matrix. And so I think returning to the sprawl and seeing it in the way that we do, which is you know it's 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 kind of overwhelming but also mundane. Mm -hmm. You know, it's weird. Mm -hmm that way and i think right. that that is that's how case sees it you know it's mm -hmm. it's this sense of coming home but also realizing that like 
it's it's still foreign you know it's like there's there's no home in the sprawl because the sprawl even when, though i was doing all right there sucked you know <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. like i was on drugs all the time i was hurting all the time i wanted to escape my body and then the one thing the one time i stepped out of line which in this case is stepping out of line of criminals line so it's not that he did a good thing it's that he did a a bad thing that they didn't like you know mm-hmm. they just like cut off his legs essentially cut off his arms and legs um, and left him there and they're like have a good life you can keep the money yeah. you know <laughs> yeah i think yeah because you're gonna need it yeah i think, I think that's that that yeah. yeah that's one of the that's one of those lines when you come to it too i think it's almost as good as um the sky above the port was a color of a television turned to a dead channel because you read that where it's like you know he gets in trouble because he stole the money and they're like you can keep the money good luck and mm-hmm. you know he's sitting there basically without arms and legs and he's like please mm-hmm. kill me and they're like nah 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 you got go see what you can do <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, yeah 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 it's just brutal yeah and it's interesting too because so i have two thoughts about this the first one is that um i feel like if there was a little bit more interiority a lot of this kind of technique that we're talking about could really work because mm-hmm. uh the way gibson's writing is he's confident that his poeticism and just the, the style of the sentences is going to convey how a certain thing looks. And that thing is like dipped in a texture that's supposed to right. make you feel a certain way. And by extension, if you feel that way, then Case is supposed to feel that way too. So he doesn't feel the need to reiterate himself. It's very right. minimalist in that way. Yeah. Um, I just, where I'm at now, there's a lot of power in simple lines about like, he felt sad about that just as anchoring points i i think that a few anchoring points not to workshop a classic novel that sold 10 million copies but fuck it that's what we're doing right (laughs) uh uh a little bit of that i think would have gone a long way yeah so um have you ever read uh remains of the day by ishiguro Mm -mm. okay one of the best books of the 20th century but uh so he, you're following an English butler and he is like the most British guy that has ever been invented. Um, and so there's almost no interiority, even though the whole mm-hmm. novel is him like describing things in memory. So it's, it's both everything is internal, but you don't really ever find out how he feels until you get about, I'm going to say like 90% of the way through the novel. And there's one sentence where he conveys how he feels and he says, and in that moment, my heart was breaking and that's it. Mm-hmm. And that line, which is like, you know, dropped light as a feather hits you like a fucking truck. You're just like, <gasps> you know, and it's like, yeah. so yeah, like had he done that in neuromancer, maybe just a few places um, to, to anchor you a bit more to who cases, I think it's, it, you know, maybe wouldn't have hit you like a truck the way it does in Remains of the Day, but it, uh, it could. You know, there's something cool that could have been done there. You know, it the vast contrast between no interiority and then this like very explicit line that's just like, I was sad. You know, it's like even a line mm-hmm. as as dumb as that, uh, done in the right way and put in the right place can hit like a brick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like he was, um, it just kind of feels like he knew that he had, from a stylistic view, viewpoint, by the way, the way that this the writing goes in this book, um, that it is really good. 
the writing is is just on point uh the storytelling i think uh maybe me leaves a little bit to be desired but i do think that he had confidence enough in how vivid the book was and how texturally dense it was that he probably wanted i wonder if it's also on purpose right like you're kind of supposed to feel that i mean because case is disaffected and numb and you know when he starts to feel hate towards the end and the ai tells him like it's good it's it's good it's good to feel something rather than nothing and then it goes away and he misses the hate Mm -hmm. um but I don't know. I don't. I don't know because your example of remains of the day is a, is a good one. Because I still think for something to work as a book, you have to you have to have some of that in there. Yeah. You have to have you know like a heart to the book. Yeah. And I I do feel like Neuromancer, uh, for as esoteric and kind of ethereal it gets at the end, still doesn't feel like it has a heart. Yeah, I would say it, it. It both doesn't have a heart, and it uh, kind of like doesn't have a body. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. um, despite all the you know explicit you know descriptions of like sex and vomiting and shitting, um, there's there's kind of a strange weightlessness to it. Um, yeah, I think it's easy. So where we're at now in history, post twentieth century, um, I think you kind of need to do what you're talking. You kind of need to do it all. In the 19, there's a reason why this genre that got a name after uh, Neuromancer came out got described as cyberpunk and not like just cyber sci-fi, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because it is kind of just like a fuck you. You Mm -hmm. The Ramones were bad at their instruments. They were bad at writing songs. Their live shows, they were really bad at them. But that was kind of what made them so huge. Um, My Mm -hmm. aunt is a this is like the most shocking thing that my aunt ever told me is like when she was in college, it was like when punk was coming out and she's like, Oh yeah, I saw like the sex pistols and the Ramones. That was awesome. She's like, I loved Johnny rotten. And I was like, what? <laughs> my, like my nice super Catholic aunt loved Johnny rotten in 1979. Uh, uh-huh. but I think that then, so, you know, I kind of like was talking to her about it and she's like, Oh, we just like fucking, hate. she didn't say fuck because she's a nice Catholic six year old lady. Mm-hmm. But you know, she's like, uh, we fucking hated Neil Young and all that kind of music. That's like kind of light and airy and, uh, you know, almost not nece- social justice. isn't like the right word for it, but you know, it's like, it had that like message of like peace and unity. She's like, no, like fuck that. Like we knew that things were bad and we just wanted someone to say, yeah, it fucking sucks, and it sucks for me too, and I hate it. And that's the whole mm-hmm. message, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, so Neuromancer comes into the sci-fi genre sort of like a cannonball, right? You know, it's it's sort of bursting apart what was there at the time, um, giving a new language and a new playground. And I think that that was enough because, uh, you know, is at a time when people were like, yeah, like fuck all this stuff, like we want something new. And you mm-hmm. see a lot of that, um, like they call it like, the, I think, what is it called? It's not called the new weird, maybe it's called like the new wave. But that was like a big thing from like the 60s through 80s. Like, uh, Sam Delaney was one of them too, where it's like, uh, these writers, writing transgressive, I mean, even Brett Easton Ellis is part of that in a sense. Though he's not writing uh, science fiction, but it's like these transgressive novels that are 
borderline nihilistic where mm-hmm. you get to the end and you're like man i feel bad mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. anything else <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and I yeah think and that in that, a way go ahead sorry no you, you go i i feel like that predicted where we are in 2024 too yeah. i i think that in terms of a feeling neuromancer was extremely prophetic in that you often in 2024 do feel like an emotionless husk where everything is, and I'm using scare quotes for listeners, uh, awesome aesthetically, if you want, if you want to find it, but you still feel dead inside. And the only real physical sensations that you have are feeling sick, maybe horny. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it does kind of feel that even though the technology is different and, you know, as we mentioned before, he missed cell phones and the space travel wouldn't, uh, it probably is never going to work, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But as a feeling, uh, as we're talking about it, I'm liking the book more. Um, Me too. Because as a, as a feeling, it's 40 years later, that's kind of where everybody is. What, what he would have, mi- he basically missed the Brave New World element of it. The Aldous yeah. Huxley kind of like everybody takes drugs and is distracted by how, again, in scare quotes, good they feel all the yeah. time. His is more gritty. But other than that, I mean it's I mean, what's the difference between, you know, playing Call of Duty for eight hours a day and what Case does? Right? Yeah. I mean at least what Case is doing has kind of like a a, a point to it. <laughs> uh-huh. Video games well, I mean- are kind of those kinds of video games like Fortnite and shit are actually more pointless than what he does in the book. Yeah. And you think of like people whose job it is to stream. So they're just playing them for like 16 hours a day and mm-hmm. making in some amount of money. But I think like there's a reason So a bunch of like YouTubers apparently famously sort of are like uh, either slowing down or quitting. I don't know. I don't, who cares? But I think part <laughs> of, you know, <laughs> these things kind of happen in cycles because I think that, grind of pointlessnessness uh like imagine if your job everyone's job is pointless and sucks if you're listening to this probably that's true because i don't know the right kind of people to make me rich um but uh, you know if your job is to play video games for 16 hours and talk to teenagers who need a friend um, i mean i guess there's some value in that but it's got to make you at a certain point be like man i do this literally every day and nothing else and even though, you know, my bank account looks pretty good, like, I, I fucking don't do anything else. Like, what is yeah. my life right now? Uh, and your your bedroom is a mattress surrounded by empty Mountain Dew can- cans. <laughs> yeah. Your bathroom is disgusting. Um, you don't talk to girls at all. <clears throat> I'm, assu- I'm assuming here that these are the dudes. Um, and, you know, like you said, like, they have money. Some of these... Twitch streamers are multi, multi, multi millionaires, yeah. but at what, at what cost? You know, I th- I think a lot of these guys who are quitting, and I believe they're still in their late twenties, they're having kind of early midlife crisis because it's the exi- what people don't realize is that when you and I were growing up and Fight Club was really pop uh, popping, yeah, we saw that and we saw like, hey, this materialism, this empty cubicle job. Like, it's not for you. And I think a lot of people saw that and they're like, right, I'm going to have fun with video games my whole life. But what's funny is you end up in the same place when you hit your 30s where you're like, oh, no, that was a waste of time, too. (laughs) Because I didn't really really do anything. I had fun, 
quote unquote. But did I? Was it fun? Yeah, I don't know. I can't. Rem- it, I can't remember any of it. So, and, and I think that's one of the things you know. Talk about like the slow drip of dopamine. You watch your subscribers go up, which is almost probably even more important at first than watching your bank account get bigger. Because mm-hmm. you know, like at a, at a at a certain point, the numbers keep going up. It's about getting the bigger number, kind of regardless of anything else. So, um, you chase that, and you're getting this feed of like, oh yeah, people love me. Look at how many people are watching me. And then you sign off for the day, and you sit in your apartment by yourself. You look at your cell phone. And you're like, I don't have any friends. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, the, the way that Neuromancer does it, where it's all external, and that's how yeah. character gets developed. That's how a lot of people live now too. Yeah. Right? They their personality mm-hmm. is what they see on a screen. It's all yeah. external. They don't have any interiority. They don't have any agency. So again, prophetic. Yeah, and I think that that you know kind of goes with the the frictionless life where it's you need. So Chelsea, my wife, um, she started doing this thing where she just goes places and on purpose doesn't pull out her cell phone. She got her uh, teeth cleaned last week. She didn't pull out her cell phone, and so in the lobby, she ended up talking to this like eighty year old lady for know, ten minutes and uh, learned her whole life story because that's what old people do when they're in public. But uh, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, she's like that. Never would. She's like, I liked that. That was that was really nice. And I that never would have happened had I brought out my my phone. Um, and like, I used to leave my phone at home all the time. Back when I had an iPod, I still have an iPod, but I don't use it anymore. It's basically mm-hmm. getting into audiobooks destroyed uh, my ability to leave my phone behind because now everywhere I go, I just listen to a book. So mm-hmm. I need my phone mm-hmm. with me. But because I have my phone with me, I'm gonna look at it too. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like I have gotten a new phone i got a new phone yesterday because my other one was just on its last leg i'd had it for eight years and i set some very clear boundaries so i kept the old phone which i'm now i am now calling the evil phone and i have my (laughs) new phone which i'm calling the good phone my good phone the apps that i have on on the good phone are audible kindle scrivener and I have TikTok too, because I want to make TikTok videos on it. But I don't have Discord. I don't have Signal. I don't have Instagram. Um, and I'm going to keep it that way. Because I feel like I didn't transfer anything over from the old phone mm, to the new phone. So all my old photos, all my old apps, they're all on that. That phone still works if it's connected to Wi-Fi. I can still use it. So I can yeah. still check Instagram. And I can still go through and find photos of Gus, my son, if I want to. Um but the new phone seemed to me to be a real opportunity to <clears throat> attempt to allow the tools to work for me instead of yeah. the, the tools controlling me. So that phone is not getting Instagram. It's not getting Discord. It's not getting Signal. Uh, it's just there to either listen to audiobooks, read read ebooks, or write. That's pretty and clever. I, I don't know if I can go that far, but I do recommend anyone listening to a. Uh not have any social media apps because they they're all bad anyway and they like just to use them makes you feel bad i open up instagram and i don't know the last time i've had instagram open for longer than a minute because it's just like it's such an ugly experience um and it's like i hate doing things on my phone they're like app based i just hate doing i hate reading on my phone i hate typing on i hate doing like everything on my phone i'd rather be at a computer to do anything that involves the internet um, but if I have the social media apps on my phone, I will use my phone to, like, uh, you know, if I'm typing a comment on a website, like on a Substack or something, 
and uh, I'm doing it on my phone, I know that I've already fucked up. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, ah, this mm-hmm. is, I hate doing this, but there's that, like, uh, you know, little part of you that's like, ah, this can't wait five minutes. It's like, dude, this can wait, like, four days. <laughs> you, <laughs> you literally don't need to respond to that at all. Yeah. Like, no one, yeah. ca- no one's even going to read it. Even the person no. you're talking to isn't going to read it. <laughs> no, no, nobody cares about anything. I teach kids, uh-huh. and you see with teenagers how much they care about what their peers think. And from our, you know... Uh, vaulted position as middle-aged men. <laughs> why do you, why do you, nobody's even paying attention to you. Yeah. And then we go comment on something. Right. And it's like, uh, well, I don't, I haven't commented on anything in 10 years, maybe. That's something I've always been really good at. I don't, yeah. I'm not a commenter at all. Um, but yeah, no, I think that um, basically uh, where we're at now. Uh, we do live in Neuromancer. Um, <laughs> we live... Uh, I also like how in this book, uh, hallucinations and illusions down to Riviera's, they're all, except for the beach, they're all shown as being very sinister. You yeah. know? Um, this idea of... It felt like uh, Philip K. Dick used to have fun with that, and his books were shot through with paranoia, and they weren't always like the most fun books to read but this book seems to have a very clear ethical stance on things that are not real it's like they are spiders and snakes and scorpions right. and headless monsters and illusion is bad reality is good and illusions are bad yeah. um, and reality is this nightmare wasteland that we live in yeah and which, which is, is kind preferable. of interesting yeah yeah <laughs> which preferable and you know to being that way it kind of I don't know, like all this stuff that we're talking about. It's like, it's kind of true. It's kind of, you know, I often think when you were growing up in the nineties, never once was it like, ah, oh, yeah, this is the best it's going to be. You know, it's, there's, there's always been I'm not an optimistic person, but I've always sort of felt like things going to get better. And, uh, I don't feel that way for a no. long time. I think no. in a lot of ways, the, uh, injection of cell phones, maybe not even just cell phones, but the iPhone, the smartphone, um, I think the smartphone, and I guess before it, the BlackBerry, sort of began to erode uh, our hum- our humanity, uh, which is uh, not good. <laughs> no, <laughs> which I think is no, kind of like good. what uh, what Gibson's getting at. It's like, you can do mm-hmm. anything, but does that make you happy? Does that make things yeah. better? And, uh, yeah. There's uh, a Delaney book called Trouble on Triton, which goes even further this way, um, where it's like, you can literally do anything like you can change your body you can change your gender you can change it back you can do this infinite amount of times as much as you want you can change your hair color your eye color everything about your body and at the end of the day um are you are you satisfied and the uh i guess the way that i preempted that description probably tells you what the <laughs> the answer what is the answer is <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is no and um, i mean I, yeah and i just again when you talked about how at a certain point you realize nothing's ever going to get better. I realized that once the rant that you and I are having about cell phones, yeah, you can tell it to a normie and they'll be nodding their head. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And then you're like, so maybe you should use it less. And then they go, Oh no, no, absolutely yeah. not. So it's like walking backward into hell and every, yeah. everybody's doing it. Well, I think like the interesting thing, it especially it comes into play with kids because everyone is terrified of when their kid gets old enough to need a cell phone. 
And um, psychologists kind of have shown that uh, if you just delay it until high school, they'll have better outcomes. Um, if you give it to them when they're 10, they might develop some very bad habits. Um, but uh, cutting themselves or killing themselves, things like that. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at the same time, people are just giving their kids iPads when they're like two. You know, and it's like the people who know that. And they're like, there's this sense that they're like, well, I'm, I'm controlling their time. It's like, you can't even control your own time on your phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes you think a kid is going to be able to, like, their brain is mush. You know, <laughs> like, they, mm-hmm. they have no inhibition. Um, and, yeah, and no discipline. Like, I barely have yeah. discipline just for anything. But uh, I try to be pretty good about my phone. I used to be better before I got uh, Audible, which now I can't yeah, get rid of. Yeah, now I can't get yeah. rid of Audible because... Uh, no, it's too good. It's too, too good. good. I'm, not, I'm not getting rid of Audible either. That's, that's how I listen to this book. But um, yeah. I think that... Uh, yeah, you and I, we're the same age, right? I'm 37. Yeah, I'm 36. 36, okay. So you and I basically the same age. And the cell phone, the iPhone, the smartphone did not come out until we were 20 years old. We yeah, I didn't have one. In t- I got my first smartphone in uh, 2012, and I broke it within a week of having it. And so yeah. I didn't really have, I think the first, I sometimes tell people this, uh, because, you know, a lot of people I know have gotten uh, gotten married, and the way that they met their spouse was through like a Tinder or a eHarmony or like whatever. You know, I was like, I met my wife before I had ever downloaded an, an app, and I think that that helped me. I think that helped us a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, but, uh, I think so too. But and I think that just to tie it back to to Neuromancer, I think that. I think that people, if they haven't read this book, even though we uh, didn't exactly give it a glowing assessment, I do think that people should read Neuromancer and Cyberpunk in general, because I do think that it's interesting to see what people in the 80s were predicting, right? And to think about the historical context that they were written in, which like we are now living in the hell that the 1980s (laughs) created, basically. Uh, and then before that, the seventies and the sixties for, cause that's how history works. But, um, what? but I do, <laughs> yeah, but I do, I do think that there's value in reading a book like Neuromancer through the lens of, uh, how is this, how, how am I case right. and how is the world that I live in, you know, the sprawl or the fucking, the, the, the free side. Right. Yeah. Um, how is all of this similar? Yeah, or Chiba, right? Um, because that's what I think books... I think all books can be self-help books if you look at them mm, through a certain lens. And uh, I found a lot of things, like you said, that are probably going to hit me about a week from now about Neuromancer. And I'm going to be like, damn, I wish that... Well, you and I are going to talk again. So yeah. maybe I'll bring them up then. <laughs> yeah, um, which... so bring this back to uh the hangout novel idea from what i understand mm-hmm. the next novel is more of a character piece in the sprawl so we might be getting that uh we'll see we'll see if that's true and if it's true we'll see how gibson handles hanging out um yeah uh so final thoughts on neuromancer i think that it is 
it's worth a read for a few reasons. Number one, because of its position as sort of the the book that made cyberpunk cyberpunk. I think that the language in it is beautiful, and I think that it acts as a good mirror uh, 40 years later to hold up to yourself. Um, I just would say that be prepared for a kind of impressionistic uh, neon paint smear of a book rather than something (laughs) that uh, rips along like a Michael Crichton thriller or something like that. Yeah. I feel more positive this time having finally read the whole thing than I have before. And I feel again, more positive talking about it now that, you know, talking about it has made me, uh, I think not even necessarily understand it, but well, a little bit understand it better, but also I think appreciate the things that I dislike. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's value in that as well. Kind of like what you're saying. It's like, even if you, um, if you don't necessarily like what this book's doing, uh, especially if you're a writer, I think there's a lot of value in understanding why didn't I like this? What about where did he? Go- if I were go- so, you know, this is maybe just a odd a, a experiment for you if you ever think about writing science fiction is read a book like Neuromancer and then think, how would I make that better? Um, I think too few people think that. Uh, I know that this often happens to me and it, uh, one of the things that often pulls me out of a book is the book, the author will make a choice and I kind of instinctually know it's the wrong choice. In my head, I start writing what the book should have done, but I, I don't stop reading. And so like, then I'm five pages later, I'm like, oh shit, like, what? I gotta go back. <laughs> <'Cause>, uh, <laughs> it's like my eyes keep going, but in my head, I'm trying to rewrite the book. Um, yep. And I think you learn a lot about story structure and, uh, and everything just by especially a book like Neuromancer, which is, you know, by, you know, it's a very important book. It's a very influential book. Very few people would say that this is a bad book, but reading this book and going, okay, this is, this is how it fails. I think that's Mm -hmm. an important skill to be able to do and then figure out what would change that into a success. Um, And that answer is going to be different for everyone. Yeah. And I think, that is so important overall for every book that you read, like you yeah. said, because nothing annoys me more on Goodreads than I didn't like this. <laughs> and then, because first of all, who cares? I don't, I don't know you. I don't care yeah. that you didn't like it or liked it for that matter. I like criticism that does what you're talking about. That is literally constructive criticism yeah. where you're talking about uh, specifically what didn't work and why, because when you read criticism like that, it teaches you something about the craft of writing. And it also teaches you something maybe about yourself the same way that the book does. But I didn't like it because there were uh, too many, too many F-bombs. In this <laughs> one. Or, I, or uh-huh. I didn't like all the sex. Yeah. It's like, that's what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? In Chiba, the price of tea in Chiba. Ooh, mama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, the, if you, if you are a writer and you're reviewing another writer's book, be prepared for them to unfriend you or unfollow you. Uh, that has happened to me multiple times. And uh, to me, it's kind of like grow up. And also yeah. I think, I think Goodreads is the best social media because it makes a lot of people talk about how like the UI sucks and everything like that. It's like, that's why it's good. It's good because exactly. it's, it doesn't work as a social media. Like yeah. you, you don't get a notification. So like by the time you see that someone responded to your review it's been like four months and you're like oh yeah. 
who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I love Goodreads for that exact reason. Yeah. Uh, there's been some really good writing about how the invention of the scroll and the optimization of social media is what makes it awful, right? It's supposed to be clunky, and you're supposed to have to try to look for things instead of just being being fed. And that's with, with Goodreads, you have to... I think Goodreads does try to recommend books, but usually, if I'm not mistaken, it's usually because a friend liked a book. That's um, they have like a little stuff. They have a little corner of recommendations, but again, it's like it's because it's not. It doesn't change. You know, it's not like a ticker or anything. Like it's just like a static image of a book cover that then you can uh, click through. You know, there might be like six or whatever, and it starts over. It's like a carousel, but you have to you have to interact with it, and it's very easy to forget it's even there. Like the the homepage of Goodreads is so ugly and useless that it almost defies you to like if you want to use it as a social media like you have to try hard you know yeah. like comment on everything and it's like you know uh if someone you can put like your reading challenges and if someone were to comment and be like "Ooh, that looks like fun i'd be like i have, I have no words to say to that <laughs> you know but the fact that i won't even see that notification even if i'm still in the app for like five days means it especially just like it's like oh what this was five days yeah. ago now responding to it is weird <laughs> like, mm-hmm. 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 um all right well i think we'll wrap this episode there um this uh podcast is going to be coming out in a somewhat irregular uh time frame so then the next episode will come out in february uh i think you'll be listening to this in january <laughs> i hope <laughs> if mm-hmm. if i'm doing if if everything goes well it will be Thursday, January uh, 20th, I don't know, whatever the calendar says this Thursday is. The 19th, 20th, 17th, something like that. Uh, yeah. What a good podcast. Um, so the second one will hopefully come out about a month after that. Uh, if not, it's because um, it's my fault. Just got lazy, forgot, something like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, all right. Well, thanks, David. And we will uh, talk to you about the next book in this trilogy in this brawl trilogy uh next next episode cool sounds good thanks for having me